Welcome to Hunting for Nova Sparkus by Coho Creative. Welcome back. This is Ellen Craven, and I have with me my partner in podcast crime, Lane Rumke. Hello, everyone. And we are back to talk with another fabulous female inventor, or innovator, I should say, um, Marie McNally. And she is a, a recently retired, but not truly retired, um, architect by trade. And she, you know, one of the projects she worked on right before she retired was within the area of neighborhood revitalization. And something really, some really interesting and impactful work that she was doing. And she's here today to talk to us about that. And we would like to welcome her. So welcome, Marie. Great, Ellen. It's great to be here. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on this afternoon. The sun, hopefully you guys have sun too. We've got a beautiful afternoon. Raining. Oh. Oh, no. It's hot here. It's hot here. So we'll pretend like we're in Atlanta or in uh, LaGrange. So, Marie, tell us your story. Tell us how you got to where you are today. Okay. So, um, I uh, went to college at the University of Oklahoma, and I uh, pursued a degree in architecture. I have an undergraduate degree in environmental design and a bachelor's of architecture. I worked in the practice of architecture for about 12 years. I was um, employed. Uh, at that time, I became um, a manager. Uh, moved into the role of, of directing staff. Um, I took on responsibilities in property management and also in building operations. Was Got some really good leadership training and uh, sort of enhanced my career and maybe moved me a little bit away from uh, always worked with architects, always worked in the field of architecture, but I was often more in the role of a manager. So in uh, 2010, uh, we had a, a, a family change. My husband got relocated to Washington, D.C. And at that point in time, I had a, my first look at uh, maybe I want to do something a little bit different. So I did some research at the time. And um, as things do sometimes happen, I ended up back in a development role. But a few years later, we uh, moved back into the Atlanta area. And I thought, OK, this is it. This is the time I'm going to really look at maybe doing something different. And uh, over the years uh, in my pre previous jobs, I had really gotten involved in some community, some, some community work, some community support work. I had um, taken on some roles in teaching and, and reading and working with children. And I thought there maybe there would be a way to sort of mirror my background in architecture and development and maybe find a role working with a nonprofit where I could use my skill set but be involved in something that's a little bit closer to uh, where I could really bring some benefit. And I got lucky. I found a position. Um, it's actually in a, uh, I don't know if they would call this a suburb of Atlanta, but it's south of Atlanta in a small community. Uh, there was a nonprofit who was looking for an executive director. So my leadership opportunities, but this nonprofit um, built affordable housing. So uh, they, they didn't necessarily, well, they weren't looking for somebody with a degree in architecture, but having that in my background and then having this leadership role and this management role um, as part of what I brought to the organization. It was quickly a good match. I was very excited and I was really on a big learning curve because at that point in time I started um, shifting um, and looking at uh, what what is you know residential design and residential design that sort of focuses on affordability and housing. And so I worked in that role for five years, and uh, just this past uh, 
just about a year ago. I actually um, am retired now and uh, am starting in my, my second career. So that's where I am today. That's fabulous. And I know that when you talked to us prior, the work, and it's called DASH, correct? Yes, it is. What does DASH stand for again? So it is an acronym. It stands for Dependable, Affordable, Sustainable Housing. Tell us more about what you were working on there, because I know you talked a little bit about neighborhood revitalization and what does that actually mean? And the other thing that I know you were you were talking a little bit about is how to think in terms of mixed income when you're factoring in those neighborhoods. So um, again, a part of, of what I learned about affordability and housing, Dash's mission, which started very finite, that is that they were looking at going into declining neighborhoods. Again, this was in a small community, not necessarily in, in Atlanta, but even small communities have neighborhoods that have declined, areas that are in a lot of disrepair. So in this small community, they had received a large grant from a foundation to go in and to start demolishing properties that needed to be taken down or refurbishing properties, in some cases building new. But what you find out when you begin to learn about neighborhoods is that it's not just about housing, it's really the broader community. And so Dash had grown into doing more than just housing. But housing was always sort of a, a primary focus. And that is really what, what we did while I was there was look at some of these peripheral areas in the community to see where we could, through housing and through um, assistance through housing, um, help families and help the community. Now, what you may be remembering in our discussion about income blending, which is really a very, very big subject, it didn't really necessarily belong to Dash, nor was it, let's say, uh, critical or, or um, fundamental to Dash, but it's part of the broader work of affordability and housing. And the fact that much research has happened in the last 20 years, I would say, really looking at the um, failure of public housing, which is not the area that I was involved in with DASH. There's, there's a lot of confusion of the difference between public housing and what we might call affordability housing or workforce housing, which is for people that work, but for people that are at the lower income levels and struggle to get decent housing at a rate that they can afford. And so, um, this income blending um, idea, which again has been around for a couple of decades, is taking market real estate and blending it with affordable real estate and public housing so that you have at, people at all income levels living together in the same neighborhoods and in the same communities. Is that part then of what you were wanting to bring to DASH? Like from a future state standpoint, is that one of the things that Dash was looking to embed into, you know, how they were how they were looking at the neighborhood revitalization? Because I know to your point, revitalization means a lot more than just the house. It sure does. It really does. And where where I could say that it was um, it was a part of what we did, I don't know that that was necessarily in the forefront. In other words, um, when you work at, let's say, at the neighborhood level and you have the opportunity, as my organization did, to build new houses, 
you can control the price that you sell the home for. So you can sometimes with the assistance of, of grants through the state or through HUD, you can get um, monies to help build to help build homes, and then you can you can provide those homes actually at a price point lower than it cost you to build it. But by restricting the buyer, you give the opportunity for somebody to at a lower income level to purchase a home at a price they can afford. And so within a neighborhood, you can have market rate homes, which you don't control. You can have controlled affordable housing, which is something that my organization Dash could do. And then in some cases you blend that with public housing. So you can do it at the neighborhood level. Again, what I did at Dash. But in fact, many organizations are doing it at a larger level and a very successful level. And after doing a little bit of research just to make sure that I represented this, this idea in the, in the broadest sense, it really is very strategic in the sense that it's not just something organic. Like, well, if you just put a few houses here and a few houses here, all of a sudden everybody will be living happily together in these neighborhoods. It's really very structured. It has to have a public and private partnership. You have to have people that are in development and private development and nonprofits, and in some cases, the government through public housing, really coming together and structuring these neighborhoods and these communities such that you can you can actually be very systematic in, and you have to put together a governance structure so that you could do things like work with public schools because you need to work with maybe a charter school or you need to work to make sure that the school systems are good. And you also need to look at things like um, other community things like YMCAs and wellness programs. And so you're not just doing housing, you're trying to bring together communities and neighborhoods where yes, they're income blended, but that they're, they're structured in such a sense that they can actually be successful over the long term. And, uh, and there have been some really big success stories yeah, that was going to be my question is, can you speak to any examples that maybe Dash has witnessed or just in general, like what are the pros of income blending? What are, what are these success stories look like? Well, one of the most, uh, the closest to home, and it's a really big success story. And it, I can only refer to it from Dash's perspective because we looked at this community and we studied this community and we st- you know, we wanted to do what this community had done. We didn't have the kind of funding to do that, but it doesn't mean that they might not someday. But this was, um, um, it's an East Lake development in Atlanta, and it was actually started in 1995. So it's, you know, 20 plus years old and mature. Um, This was um, an inner city um, area in Atlanta that had been very blighted and, and pretty much abandoned. And the primary population in this particular neighborhood was public housing. I think there were about a thousand units of public housing, which is really a lot of concentrated poverty. There's a lot of crime. Uh, there was a lot of uh, school dropouts. And there's just a, a lot of issues, uh, commu- you know, issues related to the community. And so a private developer had come in and was interested in, you know, raising the area and putting up some new housing and the, the sort of, uh, uh, better side, I guess, of people sort of rose up and thought, well, maybe that's not the right thing to do. Maybe what we need to do is sit down and build a plan. And so they came together and again, they did their own research. And what they decided to do was to work with the Atlanta Public Housing um, Association with uh, private development 
and with some state partners, and they built a community. I think it was about 1,600 units of housing. They weren't all homes. Some of them were apartments, and they were blended. They had uh, about 50% what you would call market rate, some of it being housing, some of it market rate apartments, some of it senior market rate apartments. And then the other 50% was blended between affordable housing and public housing. So you had about 25% affordability, which means protected values on rents, but not provided with, you know, uh, for free, like public housing is basically is provided uh, without cost because these are for very low income families, disabled, uh, seniors without income, you know, distressed families, that sort of thing. And Eastlake brought together these 1,600 units of housing. They worked with Atlanta Public Schools and put together a charter school. And then again, they worked with some community partners and put together some, actually a golf course for the community. And um, here we are, you know, with, decades, a couple of decades of experience with this community, and they are have, have glowing accomplishments, glowing accomplishments. They have, they have extremely high graduation rates, much higher percentage graduation rates than the state of Georgia has. They have, um, you know, a lot of the um, quality of education is measured at the, uh, I think it's the third grade. The third grade levels, you need children to be at or above reading levels at the age of uh, or in the grade three. And in the charter school for Eastlake, they have like a 97% of students that are achieving above grade level at grade level three, which means that most of these are going to be successful and most are going to graduate. And so it's making a difference with young people, which is really what you're trying to do is to get the children to through this community environment to be exposed to people that are living at different income levels to have different complex activities provided to them that they may not have in a in a, a community where everyone was a low income and and these are the rewards um, it's happening these students are now out and employed and uh, I've I read one statistic that that Eastlake development had saved the equivalent of $30 million of public assistance that would have gone to the family. That is impactful because once you're able to show numbers like that, it gives communities, government, you know, federal, local, more incentive to do something about it. And to spend the money on the front. Yes. Yes. Are you seeing this happen in other places then, or are these just isolated? Is this something that, you know, is going to become a more concerted effort in lots of cities or? Yeah, we have to hope so. We have to hope so. We have to hope that yeah. as community, and it, and it certainly isn't only Atlanta. I know these stories because Atlanta is close by, but another, you know, big success story. One of my community development directors uh, moved to a position in Seattle, Washington, where he went to work for the uh, Seattle Housing Authority. And Seattle owned a lot of uh, housing authority, owned a lot of property near downtown, which is, you know, it's very expensive property and it's where people want to live. And so they got the idea again with their own research and, and background on this sort of idea. And so instead of just building public housing, they build developments. 
where the housing authority is actually working with local developers and then building a combination of housing market rate, housing market rate apartments, uh, market rate senior living together with public housing and affordable housing. Again, sort of in that 50-50 ratio. And uh, they, they haven't been at it as long. I think maybe um, 2010 was their initiative was was started. So, but again, they're 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 sort of tracking that third grade level and looking at how are the third grade level students doing, and uh, so far really really good results. Those are two that I know about. My guess would be if we looked at Cincinnati, they may have something oh, yeah. in the works. They may yeah. have you know they may have a nonprofit organization that's looking into it. Uh, it does take focus. It means that you have got to you know get people on board and working together with this long-term goal, which is hard, you know, people like to see these quick results, you have to be looking at a couple of decades to be willing to go through this to look at long-term results, but it works. So let's say you have your hat, your, your creator, inventor, innovator hat on, what would 10 years from now look like? What would you wish for it to look like in terms of what neighborhoods are starting to look like across the US? How would things be different from a downtown versus a suburb all the way to, to your point, blending? You know, I, I don't know that I necessarily have a vision, but I think if you if, if I look at, let's just say what's happening, what I see happening in, in, in town Atlanta, I was just having a conversation about this earlier today. Young people today wanna live closer to where they work and are a lot more open to living in town in blended communities. They don't have a lot of the same yeah. hangups that an older generation does about living with people with different backgrounds and different income levels. And it seems that I'm seeing in Atlanta a lot of development, uh, high rise development, uh, housing development in town. And that hasn't been done, not on the levels that it has been done in the last uh, decade or so, and they can't build them fast enough and they fill up. So what I'm hoping is that in these market rate developments, and oftentimes it is required and it may depend on where you're building, but if you wanna get the property, sometimes you have to make a commitment to the community and you have to say, okay, I want this property. So what I will do is I will guarantee that 10% of the apartments that I build or the condos that I build are held aside for either, you know, at a certain pub, uh, affordability level or even possibly for the voucher system, which is part of public housing. And that's what I would hope that people are doing because as this housing is going up and people are, again, very open to living in different kinds of, it's gonna happen more organically than it has in the past and maybe with a little bit less structure. That makes sense. And it makes, makes me actually think of something. What do you think about all of the, so like, for instance, in New York, there's a lot of buildings that are sitting there empty in downtown. Like they're just sitting there empty. And a lot of that is because, you know, some of it happened obviously with COVID, but it was starting to happen before where people were, were leaving the city to go outside the city for, you know, kind of a, a more calm, less stressful life and, and less expensive lifestyle. Do you think that, you know, and one, are you familiar with that? And then two, how do you think that they, like, 
well that it because i was going to say because it would be interesting you were talking about the fact the whole um the voucher system and, and a percentage of property that if some of those buildings could be deemed affordable housing without it having to be a an uphill battle in terms of we don't want people living here there i mean it's it, it's there's a there's a magical component to how you make that happen that to your point is very complicated and but it's if from your point of view it is it is doable it is something that can happen and can be successful absolutely i mean you know i i did not know that phenomenon about new york and having vacant buildings and it kind of surprises me it's if you just look at historically new york is it's dense and and someone that lives there lives there for many reasons you usually it's because of accessibility to all the things that they need that are in that that environment you know other companies other organizations uh, i mean in the marketing field like your field i'm sure it's you know that you being in the hub and you know around where it's happening yep. but in new york for many years and you've heard this controlled rents they had to implement controlled rents a long time ago because the prices were skyrocketing and no one could afford to live there and so controlled rents was actually a really early idea on a way to sort of hold back some affordability and i don't know if the state implemented it or new york city implemented but they saw that as the only way to survive in the future i mean not everybody's making two hundred thousand dollars a year right and then you still need cab drivers and you still need people that you know yep. work in the restaurants and so um controlled rents was sort of a a subset of government provided affordability now, okay, so today they've got these buildings and they're empty. Yeah, wouldn't it be great if you got a private developer that said, wow, tell you what, you give me the building, what I will do is renovate it. And then what I'll do is I'll structure it such that 50% of this is market rate, very high expense. Yeah. And what really would happen is the people that can afford to pay would then in some ways help subsidize those that can't. And then public housing, of course, you would have government funds that would kick in. But I think that when developers find out that that they not only can still make a profit that way, but they can make a profit and they can do something good, I think that the incentive is there. So wouldn't that be wonderful? So it would be a great vision. If if people were interested in, and I don't want to say lobbying because I don't really mean lobbying, but you know, working to make this happen in their areas. What would you say they should go do? Would you say work go work with a nonprofit or would you say this really needs to go to a a state or you know federal level? So cities and states and federal are always going to be involved. In some ways they have to be. What I feel like is where the lobbying, the talking and the conversations needs to happen at the private level. It really needs to be with okay. private organizations understanding this is, like I said, it's a, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And that if they work with state partners, city partners, and, and federal government partners, that there's a way that they can, can build and build to make a profit, but yet build for the future. And, you know, the, the better job we do at income blending and, and, and bringing people out of poverty, um, there, there was a great um, mission statement that was put together by the East Lake Committee. And it really was that our biggest asset in the United States and untapped 
is our people. You know, we need workers. We need a workforce. And if you have people that are undereducated and underemployed and you can get those people working at a higher level, then the success is everyone's success. Not just those individuals, but everyone's success. It's corporate success. You know, it's success for the country. And so it's really sort of that message that needs to be out there being being spoken more often. Not, oh, the do-gooders, you know, oh, the nonprofits are going to do it, or, oh, it's the federal government's responsibility. I think it's everyone's responsibility. But there's a way to do it and still, you know, do what we like to do, which is to have, you know, profitability and growth. Is there a group that is educating in doing this right now? Or is it really, is it really fragmented with lots of smaller nonprofits pushing? There are some, there are some groups. Um, I, I don't know for sure who all they get out there and talk to, but we met an organization um, and they were a partner in Eastlake. They weren't um, necessarily responsible for the uh, development, but they were a partner trying to find their name, but um, purpose-built communities. So purpose-built communities is really that, meaning that, that they were trying to put communities together that have been well thought out and, and communities in a broad sense, not communities for the poor, but communities for everybody. And so purpose-built communities try to um, go into, let's say, um, in-town Cincinnati community that's been maybe declining, maybe abandoned in some case, and get people to move back, you know, get people to invest, get the grocery stores to open, you know, so that, that the community can thrive. So there are some out there, no purpose-built community. Actually, we had a, um, a group from Cleveland come in and speak to us who's kind of a national um, nonprofit leader and working on community development. So there are some out there. Um, I don't know. I don't have any statistics on their um, what their experiences are or their successes are, but it would be something you'd like to see happen. Yeah. And you sound pretty knowledgeable. You could go start being a spokesperson for one of them. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> it's, you know, when you get involved in something like this, you get engaged really quickly because it is just, it's touching. When you work, you know, directly with families you see families that are struggling they're working very hard but they're just struggling and um a lot of really good people out there that are just you know not getting a lot of help and uh and they're falling through the cracks and uh in in the community i worked at um in the small community you know they're just um a lot of of young people that don't have a very bright future unless some of these things get fixed so, um, yeah, I'm pretty engaged with it, and I can uh, I can talk a lot about it, um, but not to say that I'm anywhere near which some people that devote their whole life to it. No, that's great, and and it's it's really impressive. And we didn't we didn't hit on everything with your your career, but your journey, just starting at the Federal Reserve and ending up with Dash, and I don't you know we we didn't even talk about getting into you know, what you're doing now with your, your fifth job, as you put it, or your fifth career. But it, it's really wonderful to see people who have been able to progress through their career and land doing something very powerful and very important from a community, from a human level. So it's very, it's wonderful to talk to you. Well, Ellen, we were talking a little bit um, before the program started, and that is that 
when people have the chance, I mean, when you have gotten yourself financially ready for retirement, that it would really be nice if most people took that last five years or maybe added five years on after they retire to go out and help the community because there's so many areas that need help. And, and really, those of us that have been working for many yeah. years and have really a lot of skills that we don't even know we have, but what we can bring to an organization that in most cases can't afford to pay high salaries and can't afford to really find the best people. But, you know, if you could give back to the community that way, I mean, I took a salary when I worked at Dash. There are ways to continue to work, but to give back at the same time. So that, that would be one thing. And I think I remember if it was your mother-in-law or someone who had said, I'm going back to work, but that would be, that would be great if people thought about that a little more often, you know, take, take your last five years and, and give back. And, uh, and I've certainly enjoyed it. I've gotten as much out of what I did for Dash, you know, as they got for me, if not more. And, uh, and really the whole, the concept of, of even understanding what affordable, what does affordability mean? Or what is affordable housing? What is that? And you begin to realize what an issue it is. It's not an issue that's a Georgia issue or an Ohio issue. It's a national issue. There is not enough housing available to people. Yep at lower income levels that they can afford. That's decent. It's decent. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a problem. And of course, housing prices are rising. We all see that happening, which means it's only going to make it worse. Yeah, I know. So our podcast is called hunting for Nova Sparkus and we named it such because we're really looking to spark ideas, new thinking in others. And I know your your story is definitely going to do that. But what I'm wondering is if there's a parting piece of wisdom or knowledge or something you would like to to pass on that would be a piece of inspiration from you. And you might have already said it with your, I think you already said it too. I, with the, you know, with, you're about to retire. Very naturally. I hadn't thought yeah. about that before we started the conversation. <laughs> but it, it, it does occur to me that that almost I couldn't trump that idea. Um, because I mean, it's a personal journey for me, but I, I sensed and, and I know that coming into the organization that I did and, and the way I was able to help them think a little more strategically, you know, put together a strategic plan, which was, you know, something a little bit obtuse to their environment, uh, you know, think about yep. being financially self-sufficient, which is, you know, nonprofits are often, you know, looking for grants and donations, but to try to develop a way to become financially stable. Those were things that I could, could bring in and also being mindful about programs that are successful and programs that are not, and not just sticking with a program just because you've always done a program. So there was sort of that, that corporate thinking that you bring into a nonprofit that really helped them change some of the things they were doing, makes them much more successful and will healthily secure their future. That's great. Lane, do you have any parting questions? No, I think you covered everything. This was great. Great. Thank you so much again. I'm, I, I mean, I really think that you should, uh, you know, pat yourself on the back, your organization for raising some issues, some, you know, issues that are out there in the world, um, sustainability and 
affordable housing, and I'm sure there's dozens of, of good topics that you guys, but, you know, this is one of those getting the message out opportunities. So thank you. It, it was actually, it was interesting when we first said, okay, women as innovators, we were like, okay, we know lots of women who are actually in innovation. And then when we started to to really talk to people and think about it, we were like, there are a lot of, there's a lot of innovation that happens outside of the job title innovation. And such as like what you've been doing, different education models. And I mean, that's, that's a subject that's not, that's a service basically. That's not a product. Um, but we really have been intrigued by the types of stories we've been getting. So it's, this is really an interesting season we're going to have. Great so, to meet you. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. If Hunting for Nova Spark has tapped into your curiosity or sparked any new thinking, check us out and get in touch with us at cohocreative.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Coho Creative. 